Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Okay, everybody. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, I'm Jim Bruggers. I cover the Southeast for Inside Climate News after being a reporter at the Louisville Courier Journal for, I don't know, like 19 years. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a plastics expert, but uh, last January or last December at an Inside Climate News retreat, uh, the executive editor, Stacy Feldman, said, Jim, how would you like to do some plastic stories this year? So, um, <clears throat> and find the climate angle. So, uh, um, so anyway, um, we're at least going to start off with trying to kind of just zero in on on plastics and climate change. And uh, last year at the SEJ conference, there was apparently a wide-ranging discussion about the overall problem of plastics and the recycling issues and uh, plastics in the ocean and plastics in our bodies and all that stuff. So um, <clears throat> we just thought we would try to focus a little bit on climate change right now. Um, and so uh, there was a, a report out um, earlier this year, <clears throat> and I think Judith is going to talk about it a little bit. but. Um, you know, just this one fact, production and incineration of plastics globally produce more than 850 million metric tons of greenhouse gases, equivalent to 189 large coal-fired power plants. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot. And uh, um, we're going to start with Judith, who's a former EPA uh, regional administrator, and, uh, uh, each, and, and, uh, and she's going to kind of set the table for us. So, uh, Judith, thank you very much for coming here. My pleasure. Thanks. Good morning. Um, right after the session, I have to run faster than I'm usually comfortable to get um, a van to the airport. So I won't, you know, you know the best thing about these conferences is the chit chat after, afterwards. So I'm not ignoring you. I'm running. But there's my contact information. And please feel free to call me uh, anytime. I do know a lot about plastics. I don't know everything. And so I've kind of been playing a role of almost, um, plastic pollution traffic cop. Reporters call me a lot, and I say, that's, that's a great question. I have no idea. Call these other people. And I always send you to people who are really uh, smart and well-informed. So we're definitely focusing today on plastic and climate change, but it would be malpractice for me not to just say this is also a huge ocean issue with 9 million metric tons of plastic entering the ocean every year. Half of all plastics ever made were made in the last 13 years. And I teach two classes at Bennington College in southern Vermont. I think it's the first college-level classes taught on plastic pollution. And in my early lectures, I go through all of the environmental and health implications of plastic production. And then at the end of the second class, I say, and recycling is not the solution, at which point some of the students actually look like they're going to start crying because uh, they listen to all the problems and say, but we can recycle, right? No, at the highest level of plastics recycling in this country has been 9.5%. That is anemic. For 30 years, the plastics industry have told us, go ahead, you know, buy as much single-use plastic as you want and throw it into the recycling bin, uh, no problem. So I was so concerned about the growing problem of plastic pollution, I decided to completely 
rearrange my life so I can work full-time on plastics. So I teach at Bennington College. I also started a little campaign called Beyond Plastics. I'll pass this out. Don't feel any obligation to take one. I actually want to save the paper. I also have created uh, a media contact list for reporters. So if you're interested in covering plastic pollution, I will... Um, I will pass that around. So my parents, who I love, named me after St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. Um, so that is why I have decided to work to eliminate plastic pollution everywhere. And one thing that really compels me is the climate change issue. We cannot tackle climate change without tackling plastic pollution. And here's why. There are two big climate connections. One is during the production of plastic, and the other is disposal, uh, because most of the plastics, as I said, are not getting recycled. And, and I am a big recycling fan. I mean, I have set up my town's recycling program, but I now say you really should only recycle number one, number two, and number five plastic in your bin. The rest of the stuff is very likely uh, not getting recycled. I was at the SCJ conference last uh, year in Flint, which was fantastic, and I had a conversation with a very prominent climate change reporter. Uh, he or she, um, I won't reveal who, um, covers climate change and fracking better than almost anyone. I'm not going to say the name, you can guess. And he or she had never heard of ethane crackers. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks. I think ethane crackers and, and their proliferation is the biggest underreported environmental story in the country right now. So you know about fracking. At the well pad, um, ethane is flared into the atmosphere. Not a good thing. It's a potent greenhouse gas. Uh, there are now hundreds of proposals to build what's called ethane cracker plants, where rather than venting uh, the ethane into the atmosphere, it's captured by a pipeline and then sent to a giant ethane cracker facility, uh, where it is the building block for single-use plastic packaging. It will make plastic packaging cheaper than it is today. There's not enough time, unfortunately, to go into any every detail here, but I want to commend to you, this is just the executive summary, a report by Center for International Environmental Law, SEAL, Plastic and Climate, the Hidden Costs of a Plastic Planet. These ethane uh, cracker facilities emit huge amounts of carbon. They also emit... Uh, other air contaminants, the one I'm particularly concerned about is benzene. And of course, they're almost always proposed in low-income communities of color. What I think is happening in the industry is uh, the fossil fuel companies realize that they're going to have reduced demand for transportation as we move toward renewables. Electricity generation won't rely as much on fossil fuels. So the big play now is toward plastic production. And if plastic production and use grows as currently planned, by 2050, the emissions, the carbon emissions from ethane cracker facilities will be the equivalent of the emissions released by 295 new coal-fired power plants. So while the environmental um, 
regulations have made new coal plants less likely, the substitute in terms of carbon in the atmosphere will be ethane cracker facilities. The world's largest ethane cracker facility is in South Texas, run by ExxonMobil and Sabic. Um, there are the, the hundreds of new facilities that are proposed. They're not all going to be built. They're primarily in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, um, Texas, and Louisiana. Uh, that doesn't mean ethane crackers is not an issue if you're covering other parts of um, the country. Um, these facilities won't exist without massive taxpayer subsidy. Um, uh, President Trump was at the Shell uh, complex in Pennsylvania that is supposed to open next year and produce 1.6 million metric tons of polyethylene every year. The plant will also receive 1.65 billion in tax breaks over 25 years. And Shell has said without these public subsidies, they would not uh, be able to build this facility. Um, production impacts are, are growing. Um, so th so that, that is the front end of the, the climate connection. Ethane crackers. Google it, become an expert on ethane crackers. And then you go to disposal. Um, there has not been a new garbage incinerator built in the United States in the last 25 years, except for one in Florida. But we do have a large fleet of existing old garbage incinerators. And they um, like to burn plastic because of the high BTU value. When you burn plastic at incineration, um, you will get a range of air contaminants. For plastic, my concern is dioxin, but also garbage incinerators are a very large source of carbon pollution, um, not including hey, hey, Judith, open burning. Could, could you wrap up? Yes, for absolutely. Your, we'll get back to you real quickly. Yep. And <laughs> plastics in the ocean. Uh, there's a climate connection. Um, the plastics in the ocean may interfere with the ocean's capacity to absorb and sequester carbon. And finally, there was a peer-reviewed scientific uh, study out about six months ago that plastic in the ocean uh, sometimes emits methane. So um, plastics, big climate connection. Uh, thank you. By the way, um, just as with our other speakers at this conference, uh, their bios are available on the SEJ website as well as the Huba app. So please, I'm not going to read them here, so please just go look for them there. So up next is, uh, um, is Professor Chen from Colorado State University. He has a lab uh, here and does uh, chemistry research. He's a polymer expert. And um, I, I was delighted to hear that he, I, I went to this um, just mega plastics summit in Houston. It was like the belly of the beast. And earlier this year, and there was a lot of talk about pla about uh, chemical recycling. And um, and so he does that. And so, uh, um, I mean, it's something that we'll hear. Is it's like a it's like a long term. I think a long term, maybe a long term solution. But it's it's uh, it's cutting edge. And and if you could just kind of tell us, uh, introduce us to chemical recycling and the circular economy or whatever. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Jim, for uh, inviting me here. I think uh, I'm the cheapest uh, option. So it's a five-minute walk for my <laughs> chemistry building. Oh. So uh, joking aside, and uh, so in all seriousness, I, I think uh, uh, 
<laughs> I, I just know a little bit about plastics, but from research standpoint, and uh, I think uh, polymer science and, and it's closely related to the plastic industry are at the crossroad. And since the uh, discovery of uh, synthetic nylons in the 1930s and, and the powder orphan plastic is the 50s, the, the worldwide distribution of this uh, vast amount, quantities of uh, 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 ultralight, high performance, uh, long-lasting cheap plastics basically has to fuel modern economies. And uh, they have become indispensable to, to the society, to, to our modern life and, and the global economy. However, we now, we, they used to, industry used to have a freedom, all the freedom they, they have as long as produce plastics that can be useful and can make money out of it. But now things start to change because everyone recognizes, thank you, thanks to the hard work of our environmental journalists and all of you here, because now, because we recognize that based on the, that follows this uh, unsustainable fossil-based linear economy model consisting of a mine, make, use, dispose. So that linear economy model has, uh, creates worldwide crucial uh, uh, problem issues. Number one, it, it fails to address end-of-life issues of post-consuming plastics. Num uh, number two, it rapidly depletes finite natural resources. And the number, th number three, it also loses tremendous amount of uh, actually materials of value to the economy, uh, average about 80 to to $100 billion lost to economy annually. And uh, last but not least, and uh, it, it suddenly causes this tremendous, severe environmental pollutions to, to capacity pollution to landfill and oceans where we're talking about it today. So, so those are critical issues and based on this linear uh, economy model. So what is the solution? I think Jim already alluded to, so circular economy. If I can summarize, Every sort of approach is a solution. This is a single solution, circular material, plastic economy. But there are many different approaches. So one suddenly, the, the, the most convenient is that they already talk about incineration, but it creates recovery energy by heat, and also but it creates lots of greenhouse gas, pollution. And then second one, and it's, it's uh, basically mechanical recycling. It, it, but however, the mechanical cycling uh, suffers inevitably quality loss, so-called down cycle. I'm not talking about it in great length. But the third one is the biological cycling. It should be like ideal. They say, okay, after the end of use, the end of life, we put in landfill, the microorganisms do mineralization, get a CO2 in the water, then, then photosynthesis gets a biomass, you look at biomass and make a plastic, and it looks like, wow, it's an ideal cycle. But the problem, there are lots of issues with that, and it's a very long life cycle. It's a decades, and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, so the complete cycle, there's the other issues of degradability in the nature, uh, natural environment, although in confinement, it's biodegradable. So that's a part of the solution, not solution. So my favorite solution is chemical recycling, and the fourth one, but it's emerging. So the reason is that you can, if it works well, you can rapidly recover building block and, uh, of a material, then, then they could use that to make, to make a virgin quality polymer again. That, so that because of a fast uh, time scale, ability to recover building block, ability to make a virgin quality polymer, so all these qualities and advantages address, uh, basically address the, the, the shortcomings I just mentioned uh, 
or there are three recycling processes. But no single solution, because if that's the ideal solution, why have people done this? Why have not materialized? But there are three major challenges socialwide that. One is energy input. So if you do the deconstruction, you make polymers, they are very stable, right? How much energy do they input to decompose the back of the building block molecule? Right, so that's energy put. And the second, second is selectivity. You do the pyrolysis, you heat it above the decomposition temperature, you produce many, many different species, you need to do separation, you add an additional energy cost. The last but not, perhaps the most important in terms of material scientist design, that is the depromisability or depromisability, degradability, and the performance trade-off. Because like polyorphans, right, it's a very robust material, very mechanically uh, robust, but they are not, you, typically chemically recyclable, or there are some polymers that can be easily degraded in the monomer, but they don't have the integrity, mechanical strength to be practically useful. So the, 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 the holy grail of that field is how you design the future plastics that uh, exhibit not only robust mechanical properties to be practically useful, but also complete chemical recyclability. So, Looks a tall order, but we, as Jane mentioned, there are recent studies that actually make it possible. There are polymers out there that can just do what I just talked about in terms of chemical recyclability. I think my time's running out, and suddenly I'm really happy to answer any further questions okay. uh, you might have. Uh, yeah, it, it really was the topic, uh, kind of the, sounds like the, the um, <clears throat> just, you know, the, the ultimate solution that people were talking about at this conference. And the, the people who were, who, uh, these folks from, these, ener these energy analysts and, and economic analysts from IHS Market who helped put on this conference, I mean, they were saying that, that the industry was keeping the information about how they do this so tightly held that, that they aren't even able to evaluate where that technology stands right now. But anyway, um, so Steve Alexander uh, is... Uh, um, the, he, he runs the Association of Plastic Recyclers. Um, I did invite the Plastics Industry Association to attend um, the conference. I had met some of those po people at the conference that I went to. I, attended, I invited them to be here, but they declined to, to come. And I'm grateful that Steve has uh, chosen to, uh, um, to help us out here. Uh, I guess, you know, at that conference I went to, um, these analysts and others were just saying that we can't recycle our way out of this problem. Um, including the climate change angle to it, and I don't know, what do you think of that? I mean, you're a recycler, right? Um, do you want me yes, to oh, I'm sorry. Yes, you need to talk into this so they can hear. Uh, I see. That was, you really didn't want me to speak. I see. Okay, uh, no, okay. No, no. I do. Um, well, first of all, um, I'm really excited to be here, um, and I will tell you, um, for 15 years, I've been running the Association of Plastic Recyclers, and I've never been more popular than I have in the last 18 months. <laughs> and uh, uh, why am I excited? Because people are finally looking at and discussing how do we deal with the plastics pollution problem, as Judith puts it. And the plastics recycling industry, let me be very clear, we are not the plastics industry. We are the sustainability solution to whatever plastics packaging issue is out there right now. Does that mean we can solve the entire industry issue by next Friday? Probably not. So who, who are we? We're the plastics, we're the plastics uh, packaging police, as Judy liked to say. Our organization develops testing standards so that when someone brings in a new innovation into the marketplace, be it a label, be it an additive, be it a cap, 
whatever to determine whether or not that material, that innovation will impact the ability of that container to be recycled. Because people who manufacture plastic containers and plastic packaging, they'll say anything. Well, we're sort of the arbiter on that, and we deal a lot with the FTC. We also do design training. We go into uh, packaging manufacturers and consumer brand companies and teach their packaging engineers the implication for what innovation they're doing and what packaging they're making and whether or not that is a contaminant to the recyclability of the package. If you think about where we are today in 2019 versus where we were in 2012 and what the package flow looks like today versus 2012, the innovations in packaging are outpacing our ability to collect material properly and to sort the material properly. So I think that, um, uh, so one of the things that I, that I, I hope to impart upon you today is that um, it, it's important that we get the narrative correct because there's just an easy narrative out there right now in a lot of the media is that, oh, well, China stopped taking our plastic and so nothing is recyclable. Nothing can be further from the truth. By that I mean when Judith pointed out, she suggests that you collect ones, twos, and fives. Well, let's think about that for a second. Why do we have collection infrastructure for one, twos, and fives? Well, we have collection infrastructure for number one, PET containers, because of deposit laws, which were passed in the 1970s and maybe early 80s. And then why do we have um, collection for number two? Because California passed the rigid plastic packaging container law in 1991. Why do we have number five? Because our organization did a study of brand owners back in 2010 and said, how much recycled polypropylene would you use if that material was made available to you in the marketplace? And our, economics, our economic models show that you need between 350 and 400 million pounds of material being collected in an infrastructure to support that collection on an annual basis in order to support a market. And those uh, 22 brand companies came back and said they would use 1.5 billion pounds of recycled polypropylene if it was available. Well, that allowed our recyclers to go to the finance markets and start getting capital and start putting in sortation equipment and processing equipment for polypropylene. So today, polypropylene, as Judith pointed out, is, is really the, the third resin that is available to, at, at any scale of economics in order to be able to be recycled. Recyclers want more material. The biggest issue is not recycling doesn't work. The biggest issue is our collection infrastructure is based on 1970s and 1980s technology. If you, are, you, if you think about it, what are we doing? We're trying to deal with a packaging stream today that is akin to, drive, to having a 1978 Chevrolet Chevette, which I drove to Fort Lauderdale, in 1979, um, uh, meet current emission standards, EPA emission standards today. Our infrastructure is woefully lacking and woefully behind the, the packaging stream that we have today. Plastic recyclers operate at about a 60% capacity in North America. We can recycle a lot more material. We can't get it. So when you talk about the programs that you have and what material goes in, where's the material going? So we need to focus on collecting, doing a better job collecting our material, and then in the sortation infrastructure to sort our material more appropriately. Um, because that's where the issue lies. 
we can recycle anything if it's collected and sorted properly. And the other issue that we work on very much, and we, we participate in the Ella MacArthur Foundation, the Global Plastics Commitment. They rely on us for the definition of recyclability. 400 companies around the globe have signed on to this commitment. It's based out of Brussels. Our definition of recyclability includes not just we want our package to be recyclable. If you think about that, when a company says we want our package to be recyclable, what are they saying? They're saying we want somebody else to make our package recyclable. Our definition includes the material, first of all, has to be collected. It's going to be able to be separated. It's going to be able to be processed, and there needs to be a market. Because if there's not a market for your material, what are we doing? We're collecting, sorting, and processing trash. So we work very closely to create new markets for material. Um, we work with the brands. One of the biggest concerns we have is that you have all these brands that are signing on to these sustainability commitments. We want our package to be 30% recyclable by 2030, whatever. Well, when we look at the infrastructure right now, we just did a study in California on a recycled content legislation. And legislators were saying, well, we want a 75% recycled content rate by 2030. Well, our studies show you can ask that, but it's not based in reality because you're only collecting enough material for us to process to provide you with 25% content by 2030. So we need to collect more material. In terms of a connection to climate change, let me just say that we've also done the largest and most comprehensive life cycle inventory analysis of recycled as Judith said, one, twos, and fives, and using recycled one, twos, and fives resin uses only 13% of the energy as using a virgin resin to make a, to make a material in the, in the marketplace today. It reduces greenhouse gas emissions, and it uses much less energy. So when, you t when we talk to a brand about using recycled material in their packaging, we say, you've got all these sustainability commitments you made out there. You have these recycling commitments, you have these greenhouse gas commitments, whatever. Using recycled material helps you get there. And so when we talk about the circular economy, you think about what's, what does circularity mean? You know, when I was in graduate school, we had a term in the computer arrangement called garbage in, garbage out. You can, if whatever you put into the stream is where, is, that's our feedstock. So if we are not, if you're putting in contaminating material into the stream, we can't generate recycled content out of that material because we need good material going in. We need non-contaminating material going in. So it's imperative that packaging be designed with recyclability in mind rather than trying to then go back and retrofit a package. And that's really what, we're, what we, when we work with the brands and the, and the brand industries, we try and get them to make sure that this is at the top of the mindset when they're developing a package rather than putting the package in the marketplace and us finding on, on, our, on our screens that, hey, this stuff's contaminating the heck out of us. Um, think about a full-wrap shrink label. Think about that label right there on that container you've got right there, okay? See that label right there? That is an anathema to recycling because that, that label, um, now, what have we done? We've worked with the label industry to develop a floatable label. Five label manufacturers in the marketplace have created a label that floats off that when we get it through the stream. Through the stream. But right now, if you think about what that covers and the adhesive on that, that prevents that from being recycled. And it's great material. We'd love to have it, but we'd love it in a form that we can recycle it. So I can talk about chemical recycling as well. That is absolutely a, um, uh, the exuberance over chemical recycling. Um, borders on irrationality. By that I mean, by that I mean, 
the focus and the attention, that's the new big thing. I got news for you. I have three recyclers out there who have been doing chemical recycling, putting out sustainable products for 30 years. It's not new, okay? It's not the silver bullet, per se, but it is an answer as part of the solution, as Bruce has indicated. It's part of the solution. So we need to commercialize it. We need to broaden it. The only caveat we have to understand is to get chemical recycling, be it pyrolysis or um, uh, monomer reclamation, whatever, it usually takes about 17 years to get that to scale. So they, we need this investment in that arena, which is coming fast and furious, but it is certainly part of the solution. But it is not, it is not an, a, a, um, an, a, instead of, say, mechanical recycling, it is an expansion of recycling. I'll shut up. Okay. <clears throat> so I'm going to ask a couple... I'm going to ask a couple questions before we get every, first of all, how many people here have questions at some point? That's awesome. So, <clears throat> so keep those for just a second. Um, so I, I hope I'm not out in front of my skis here, but my understanding is that uh, um, <clears throat> one of the big problems in Europe is all the incineration and that incineration actually in Europe is considered to be a form of recycling. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So um, how legitimate is incineration as a form of recycling. The idea here is that is that you actually are like recycling those BTUs and you're it's I mean you're getting a second use I guess out of them. But um, how how uh, how big is that of a of, of an issue in terms of a challenge about trying to meet climate change um, goals? And and for, it's for any any of you who want to who want to address that. Well, it, garbage incinerators emit a huge amount of carbon. Um, and, I, I, and with all due respect, Jim, I think you're asking the wrong question. Okay. Um, we, we, for, for decades, we focus on end of life. I really want to invite us to come back to the beginning. I think the problem with plastics is we're making too much plastic. We're making it from virgin material, and we're about to make a multi-billion dollar shift with public subsidies for ethane crackers. And so, um, look, I think reduction and recycling is substantially better than incineration, but we've got to look up front. The new Shell ethane cracker plant in Pennsylvania, when it comes online next year, could emit up over two million tons of CO2 a year. Um, there are existing ethylene crackers in Texas and, and Louisiana. And if, I, if I could just add, yeah. in my reporting, I found that that was the equivalent of what Pittsburgh was hoping to um, eliminate by, oh, I gosh, I forget the year. Um, like the next 20 years. Uh, closer than yeah. that, I think, yeah. even. Yeah, they have an aggressive yeah. plan. Right. Yeah. So, so this is the major thing I want to get across today is on, on the climate issue. We've got climate plans. We have commitments. If these ethane cracker facilities come online, they will cancel out a lot of the other improvements on reducing carbon. The Exxon Baytown refinery, uh, which is operating today as a cracker, emits 1.4 million tons of CO2 a year. So if you just look at these two cracker facilities in Pennsylvania and Texas, those are the annual emissions from these two facilities alone equal to adding 800,000 new cars to the road. So it's kind of like lots of, like there are great movies being made on climate change. Look over here. But I really want you to look over here at the petrochemical build-out. And, and how much is, of that petrochemical build-out is um, uh, dependent upon a, a, a U.S. policy 
to have the most cheapest natural gas and natural gas liquids available. I mean, the policy, right. as I understand it, is to is to have a glut. Yes. So entirely. So so doesn't that do, doesn't that also make it a problem, uh, Dr. Chen, to to have chemical recycling? If you have such cheap raw material, um, then then how do you how can we how can we get to a circular economy if the raw material we're getting out of the ground is so inexpensive? It's just cheaper to go make something new. I don't know. Do you yes, please go. It? Please so, do. Thank okay. you. All right. Um, so um, before I answer a question, can I uh, talk about my perspective? I mean, in response to Steve and real points about uh, mechanical recycling versus chemical recycling. Sure, but please do. That's your expertise. Okay. I'd like to hear. No, that. I'm not expertise in every area of mechanical recycling. <laughs> I just look at from a science standpoint. Yes. What kind of a studies uh, out there? Yes. For comparison, so I think there is a great deal of confusing about chemical recycling. And uh, so inability, so the efficiency and the why it, it doesn't take off and uh, suddenly companies have said it, it's not new technology. So, but the problem is they, uh, they're based on, uh, due to chemical recycling, based on the polymers not designed for recyclability. So they are legacy polymers. They are like a high performance, very, very stable polymers that are very difficult to do chemical recycling. So you are, you're like, you're, you're Basically, that's a wrong. I think it's a wrong approach. But it is approach in terms of using those inexpensive building stocks to extend the linear lifetime of this. So, like DOE is very interested, right? Taking these uh, waste, almost inexpensive carbon sources to make something useful that way. But my, it is. Uh, I mean, it is approach in terms of simulating economy. But what my concern is if you keep making materials not inherently recyclable, you basically you just delay the problem to tomorrow. So because you upcycled, so-called the upcycled polymer, they are not recyclable, so that becomes problem tomorrow. So the heart of the problem is the chemical recycling. What the concept I talk about is somewhat different from industry. Can, when, you, when you talk about upcycling, I mean, yeah. that, that's like taking a plastic bottle and, a bottle and turning it into a park, more a park bench or so something. So value-added stuff. It's easy to make something more valuable because you use functionalization, you make something more, I mean, to make something valuable. But part of the problem is, is does that address the actual recyclability? So with that, the upcycling material become more recyclable than the building block. Otherwise, you just push problem to tomorrow, right? So you have to... You have to address it again, right? So my approach at chemical uh, recycling is different from what the industry is talking about. What I thought about is by design. Meaning, so uh, historically, plastics are designed for performance, durability, price, and uh, dis disposability, not recyclability. So the new design has to have the chemical recyclability built into the performance, meaning after the end of use life, use a simple process, either thermolysis, energy efficient process or chemical catalysis, a low energy pathway, you can trigger depromalization very rapidly so that you can cover the building block in pure state. That building block can be repromised back to virgin polymer. There's no separation needed or extensive energy costs. So that's the new design principle when I talk about the chemical recycling. If you think about that, then you have the hope. And so that's kind of addresses all these issues. So uh, in terms of mechanical recycling, it's actually ideally, in principle, that's instead of short as a circular economy pathway because from bottle to bottle. But no technology out there, as I 
very often can do that because the reason inherently, so uh, there's lots of publications out there, studies. So you take a virgin quality PET water bottle, right? So it has fantastic mechanical properties, elongation 200% and fantastic material, but you clean, clean it off as much as you can. You put it back in the extruder, you extrude that bottle back once or twice, becomes a brittle and a 2%, 20% elongation. So, but in, previously in China, suddenly the so-called down cycle, they can re reuse the PET as a recycle. They make a cheap powder acid clothes. And so that's called a down cycling, right? So, so it is a challenge, and, but ideally if we can do that, but the, the science tells us when you make a polymers, when you have these mixtures, no one, I, to my knowledge, can get version quality of the powder back because there's no separation techniques that can do that. But as a chemist, when you do small molecules, you can get a pure molecule back, pure amount of back, then you can make a version quality of the powder. And, and if, if you did that, theoretically, could you um, at least re reduce or, or eliminate or, or at least reduce the amount of, of, of natural gas drilling you would have to have to come up with virgin, I mean, with... Absolutely. So the, so. the, the key is the the circular economy. So what I take, I pay- But this is still like decades away though, right? I mean, so. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, the industry is willing to spend money because there's a higher cost versus a fossil. Yeah. So obviously I cannot compete with ethylene and, and, uh, and uh, right. propylene, right? But that's totally cost econ economic waters based on linear economy because it disposes right. so cheaper the better. But a circular econ yeah. ec economic model tells it differently. That cost depends on how many cycles you can do, right? But if you suddenly we, we publish so-called infinite recycle plastic, right? The more cycle you do, then the lower the cost, mm -hmm. then eventually you yeah. pay back, right? So then yeah. you get a, this uh, inherently chemical recyclable polymers. So that's my definition, somewhat yeah. different than from the industry. Yeah. I just want to clear it out. But at the industry, you, you can do chemical recycling, the legacy polymers. I think that's the important thing to do because there's a vast amount of uh, these uh, inexpensive carbon Feed stocks they can utilize to make some variable. That's fine. That's kind of part of research, but not my kind of research. Yeah. So, so Steve, does this mean that um, uh, in order to get to, you know, this kind of uh, plastics nirvana out in the future, um, where we don't have to drill for natural gas, we don't have to have eth uh, um, you know new ethane crackers, we need to have some sort of like, like taxpayer subsidy to help recycling. I mean, I did hear industry people sort of suggest that 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 um, that that there'll have to be some sort of government policy some way to make to make this kind of recycling work. Well, um, we don't have time to to get through all that, um, but but yes, I think there are a couple. Let me just say a couple of things, and then I'll get to that. First of all, you asked about incineration. It's not politically feasible to cite new incinerators in this country. I mean, if anybody wants to take that and lead with their chin, please go ahead. Um, uh, we, and to Judith's point, the carbon emissions are just un, un, uh, unsustainable um, long term. Secondly, when we talk about the economics and you know all the fracking that's coming on and the crackers and what have you, that has huge implications for recycling because you know, basic economics is, you know, when you, when you have all that mater new material coming on, it depresses the price in the marketplace, which makes recycled plastic more resin, so uh, more expensive. So there's a price premium. So we're very concerned about, about um, and it's not just in the United States. Mm -hmm. 
because one of the reasons that China stopped taking um, uh, the scrap, and they were just, our exports to China have been going down dramatically for 20 years. It wasn't just a brand new thing, but when they, it was really a paper issue. But when they stopped taking that, they want to create their own virgin resin manufacturing industry. And they are, they are priming the pump, and they're looking to export a whole lot more virgin resin as well, which is going to keep produce, uh, reducing. So it's a challenge. It's always going to be a challenge when, from the recycling industry to take the material and process it and try and make it price parity across the board with virgin, which is, a, which is certainly a challenge. Um, there, there no question about it. And I, and I just want to um, – a couple of things about uh, – when we talk about chemical recycling, my concern with all the attention on chemical recycling is people are going to say, hey, that's great. That's the answer. And we're going to forget about mm -hmm. the infrastructure we have now in this country that needs help, which is the collection and sortation and mechanical infrastructure recycling. And I just want to, you know, make clear that there is, there are, there are many um, uh, uh, resin man recycling companies that have letters of non-objection from the FDA. I mean, there are 100 percent recycled content PET bottles out there, and and they will continue to be out there, and they can be used repeatedly. But to your point. And this is just a critical point, and this gets into the, the basic problems with recycling in this country. There's 20,000 communities in this country, okay? And, and basically, there's probably 15,000 different type recycling programs in terms of what they accept, what they don't accept, et cetera. Um, and historically in this country, solid waste management has not been a federal issue. It's been something that's held on the state and local, local basis. So, you know, what you can collect here in Fort Collins, you might not be able to collect down the road in Greeley. And that's incredibly confusing to consumers. Um, the misuse of labels by, um, by brands in terms of saying something's recyclable or it's not recyclable. The complete misuse of the triangles um, uh, as an education tool. These are things that need to be addressed. And I can tell you, we also do some work on Capitol Hill. We're, um, we're trying to get some, um, uh, some infrastructure funding dedicated to expanding the collection and sortation industry right now. And, and in my 30 years doing stuff on Capitol Hill, there's never been the interest in trying to develop some sort of national policy dealing with recycling. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we're, not just, we're not just talking about bottle bills. You're talking about standardization in terms of labeling, standardization in terms of what you collect across the board. Um, and, you know, funding, Jim, you asked a, a, national, a taxpayer deal. I don't see it going that way. I see it going toward more um, what they call echo-modulation fees, which are going on in Europe right now, where the, the brand is responsible for paying some of the disposal costs associated with its container based upon the recyclability of their package. Um, so in California, we already sort of have a little bit of that. If you're putting a, uh, a PET package into the marketplace, you're paying like 77 cents a ton. But if you're putting, say, a number seven package in the marketplace, you're paying $70 a ton. It, and so I, I see that coming. I don't necessarily just see this coming from taxpayer subsidies. Okay, we've got 30 minutes left, and this is for you folks. So, um, uh, yeah, in the back, please. Oh, yeah, well, one second. I forgot. I have to, you've heard this before, but uh, please, uh, SEJ members, um, uh, uh, get to ask questions. And uh, so if you could identify yourself and, like, who you work for, if you're an independent journalist or whatever, please. Thank you.
whether that's a good use of our efforts, whether having something that exists, maybe it's made of a biofeedstock, or maybe not, and then it degrades, uh, versus having a fully closed loop where you have this material that kind of cycles. What's the cost of, what, what, what are your perspectives on this? Uh, PLA is a major contaminant to recycling. If this was a PLA cup, you wouldn't know the difference, and you would throw it in your recycling bin. And PLA is uh, polyethic, polyethylene lactic acid, and and um, it is it's made to decompose and and degrade in a landfill. Less than one tenth of one percent of PLA in a plastic in a PET bale um, can ultimately trigger the de degradation mon moniker a, a molecule across the board. So we have worked with the PLA industry to try and stay out of consumer packaging. Um, they're into agricultural packaging, but um, that is a complete anathema to consumer recycling. And, uh, I okay, because if you if you um, uh, let's think of uh, strapping on a pallet of bricks um, that you're following the truck from Home Depot. Um, when plastic bales are when plastics are produced in a bale. And, and then they're sent to the, um, to the recycler. They're not always set out, set inside. They might be outside for a day or two. They're oxo-degradable, which means the, the molecule, the degradation molecule is then enacted, okay? You can't stop that enactment. So you're weakening whatever product you make out there. So, and as a result, you could have a product that doesn't perform the way it should, and there could be potential problems. Also, if you were to put, if this were a PLA cup, and you left this out for about three months, it would basically crinkle and, and not perform its thing. So, so it weakens the, the molecular chain of the material. So that's, that's why. And the other reason is when you process plastic, when we wash plastic, Okay, we typically, through our washing systems, go through 212 centigrade temperature. This stuff melts at about 112, which means it's, th think about putting um, a plastic cup in the dryer with your clothes. You're going to get a, a lump of goo. It just completely ruins the, the stream for the recycler across the board. It needs to be completely separate. It cannot be in with the other consumer plastics. Judith? And I think a lot of restaurants and food service are buying PLA because they think it's greener. But Steve is absolutely right in terms of the operational problems. And also, we are running out of places to site landfills. So there should be a goal to keep as much material out of landfills. Yard waste and food waste is easily compostable. It's not complicated. Let's get that correct first. That's 40% of the waste stream, yard waste and food waste. So let's get that right. Vermont passed a law prohibiting food waste from being disposed of in landfills. So you now see haulers will soon be collecting um, uh, food waste. And, and another distinction on composting is um, a lot of so-called compostable plastics Maybe, maybe, maybe if they go to a high-temperature commercial composting operation, which is less than 1% of the U.S. population has access to that. Don't put so-called compostable plastics into your backyard compost bin. Uh, Gloria?
Yeah, and we, we, I forgot we're supposed to sort of repeat the question. So it has to do with other state policies and which ones may be promising? There is an enormous amount of public interest in reducing plastic pollution. And what happens is then legislators read the latest articles about plastic damaging fish and wildlife, uh, plastic um, clogging oceans, plastic screwing up recycling facilities. A couple plastic bags at a MRF shuts down the MRF. Um, so there is um, a real explosion in state and local bills uh, being introduced. At, um, beyond plastics, we're mostly a policy shop, and we also do a lot of community work. And I advise um, people who care about this issue not to tackle this at the state or federal level. And I do want to reserve a little time to talk about a very inadequate bill that's starting to move through the US Senate called Save Our Seas 2.0. Huge problems with that. Um, but the state of, so we advocate something called the plastic trifecta, because I can't think of a better name. Uh, so I'm hoping to appeal to the horse racing audience to get them involved in plastic pollution. Banning plastic bags, five cent fee on paper to promote reuse, banning polystyrene, and plastic straws only upon request. Those are, I think, the, the foundations of a lot of bills. That did pass in Vermont legislature this year, just one session. It's passing in lots of local governments. Uh, I think most of the action is in California. There was a, it was called a circular economy bill. It almost passed, but was um, thwarted at the end. It may come back next session. But um, I spend a whole lot of time hanging out at city council hearings living the dream, 8 o'clock, let's drive three hours to a city council hearing. And I'm always met by lobbyists from the American Chemistry Council. And pro tip to the ACC lobbyists, don't show up and say, I just flew in from Washington, because that really <laughs> annoys the legislators. Um, and, and then they say, don't ban polystyrene. We can recycle it. That is hysterical. Polystyrene has a 0.00001% recycling rate. Um, and so the, the chemical industry is pushing out myths that local governments are no longer falling for. Um, you don't have to be an investigative reporter to, for instance, they send you to their website to look at all the places in your state that will recycle polystyrene. So I went to their website. There were two listed in New York. One was actually in New Jersey, not New York, and the other one uh, I called, and they said they're no longer accepting polystyrene. So, um, you know, they're in. I get calls from legislators. It's in the category of bans. It's you know banning small single-use shampoo um, at hotels. Um, there's some focus on Amazon packaging because while plastic bags are being banned at supermarkets, if you get Amazon, it's it's just like a plastic bonanza that you, there's, you know, what can we do with all of this? Uh, other areas are um, uh, in, improvements in labeling. So I think you're going to see, uh, oh, the EU banned 11, Steve, is it 11 or 13 plastic items that passed the EU Parliament. New York City, hard to legislate in New York City. New York City has banned polystyrene. It's now fully in effect. New York State has banned plastic bags. There are over 400 local bills. And so 
what you're seeing is consumers uh, going to legislators and saying, pass local laws. On our website, we also have um, a model letter to supermarkets because we get contacted by people saying, I don't, I go to the supermarket and I just, I, I can't, I can't. Everything is packaged in plastic. What can I do? So we have a model letter to sell, to send to supermarkets. But I think legislators need to be aware that the public is way ahead of where they are on these issues. And then maybe come back to the SOS bill. Um, I can't help myself. I've got to ask one question here. So one thing that the, that I heard a lot of when I went to this industry conference, um, it had to do with life cycle analysis in, around greenhouse gas emissions. And um, and uh, the argument was put forward that because plastic materials are so light, that if you ship these plastic, if you ship things in plastic materials, you make them in plastic material. If you make them out of plastic, that you'll actually have less greenhouse gas emissions when it comes to transportation costs. And, uh, you know, I just don't know how realistic that is. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how developed that science is. But if uh, anybody here has any thoughts about, um, you know, are there plastics? Could, can there be a case be made that plastics will actually help um, help us with our climate problem that we have? Not for single-use plastic packaging. I mean, I'm not against all plastics. I think car bumpers are made from plastic, and it improves the fuel efficiency of the car because it's lighter. Um, there are a lot of medical uh, devices made from plastic. What we're focused on is about 44% of the plastic waste stream, which is single-use plastic packaging. And I would question any life cycle analysis that, it, that says the, the carbon benefits are greater, you know, using a single-use plastic water bottle that you drink from for, you know, 15 minutes and then you either, well, it doesn't get recycled, right? 9.5% was the peak on plastic recycling. So that's 91% of plastics historically have not been recycled. Would, yeah. Would either of you have a quick answer on that or, because I would like to get back to the audience um, or are we going to take on the car, on the, um, just this argument that the argument that uh, plastics will actually help us solve climate change because they're lightweight. Um, I think you have to look at the entire impact. I'm not sure that that is an argument I'd be comfortable making. Um, okay. That's for sure. And I, I just, um, uh, just when, when, just remember one thing: it's not single use if it's recovered and recycled. And but it's not recovered. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not. I'm not going to argue that. Okay, I agree. That's my point. Mm -hmm. My point is, when we're talking about plastic bag bans. Whether or not you, you that that that's fine. They're 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 moving, but here, but it, it it makes my point, in that plastic bags are eminently recyclable, but we need to collect them separately. And because there's no collection infrastructure for plastic bags, they get discarded improperly. So it's not. I'm not arguing whether or not there should be plastic ba bag bins, but it's it, but it exemplifies the issue that recyclers have. We can recycle that material. We love that material. There's a tremendous market for recycled film and flexibles, but we can't collect it. And so that, that when uh, the basis of anything that I'm trying to get across today is it's not the recyclability that's the issue. It's the collection and sortation. Okay, let's go to this side, please. Yeah. Hi. Point to a place in the world that's doing it extremely well. 
I can't point to any place that's doing it extremely well um, because I don't consider – I'm not um, – you know, the European model, which is a lot different than ours, um, but they, as we talked about earlier, they consider incineration recycling. I consider recycling back into recyclability product. I don't consider, I don't consider chemical recycling to fuel recycling chemical recycling back to plastic resin I consider that recycling so um, um, if I if I had to create a system right now I would have I would have <coughs> consistent labeling that would be enforced and I would have consistent material collected in containers and recycling programs nationwide that, that that's exactly what I would. and what's interesting is if you read the FTC green guides which were published in 2012, and they're going to come up again in 2022, and we're actually working with them. Given where we are now with our evolving ton and our packaging stream, they actually did a very good job, almost prescient, in terms of how to label your product. The problem is the wording would be so long that brands don't want to put that on their label because label space is so, such at a premium. But we need consistency, and that, you know, and look, in my house, you know, you think I know all this stuff, you know, my, my, my daughter's like, okay, dad, um, can I put this in the, in the bin? And I'm like, uh, well, let me look at the bottom. Well, you know, I mean, I, I just, it, it, because, because I'm involved in this all the time, you know, I may know that, but you, you consumers, they're looking at iconic packaging. So they see this, this is clear. They probably think this is a PET container. This is a polypropylene container. So they're going to throw it in the bin if you take PET. But what if they don't take polypropylene in that system? So that's a contaminant. So we need to get more consistent in terms of packaging and collection. This side? Uh, yeah, over there, please. Hi. I haven't yet actually reported on, you know, a, a specific proposal from a state or a city and kind of what happens with that, with the exception of a few years ago when I was working for the Courier-Journal in Louisville and there was, they were talking about a plastic bag ban and I think even the, you know, the newspaper, um, the, the, you know, Kentucky Newspaper Association actually was opposed to it because, you know, newspapers are delivered in these plastic bags, which... I will admit that I actually find helpful for the cat's litter box, but um, uh, but anyway, so <laughs> so I, I, I could yeah. I could write a book on this, um, and maybe I should. But um, look at Sharon Lerner's reporting in the Intercept. She had a fantastic piece around July twentieth of this year. Um, also, there's a film coming out. It, it just premiered, and I think it'll be out next year. Called the Story of Plastics by Steve Wilson. He works for an NGO called The Story of Stuff, 
And that looks at the export of plastics to other countries and the problems it creates there because they don't have plastic recycling infrastructure. And it also touches on the huge amount of greenwashing done by the plastics industry to make us think if you throw any type of plastic, one through seven, in your blue bin, um, you know, you, you, you can relax. You don't have to change your consumer products. But I think we have not seen more progress is because the chemical industry and the fossil fuel industry is enormously uh, politically powerful at every level of government. Yeah. And I wish they would put that amount of money into supporting, you know, using secondary materials as to virgin materials. That, that actually jogs my memory. Um, I, I've been to both, you know, industry, coal industry conferences this year and plastics industry conferences this year. And one thing that they both were very concerned about is these crazy kids who are getting environmental education and coming away, you know, um, you know, with, with their ideas of sustainability. And uh, and and um, the Plastics Industry Association actually was working with some sort of partner to develop a website that then could be used by teachers to to, to go into schools to help understand the benefits of plastic. And so there is that there is that level that I've witnessed. Um, uh, Professor Chen, you yes. Can I? Yes. Because there are no questions for me, and also I, I didn't, know I didn't have a chance to answer <laughs> previous questions, so I just volunteer to answer my. Your own question. It's okay. So could but you I'm could you first ask yourself a question then? <laughs> I'm fascinated by the question from CNN News reported because the PLA. I, I I would like to offer balance of view because I don't want you guys to get out of here take away oh PLA is bad, and it's fantastic material. I, I'm, I'm very passionate. The entire next generation of uh, uh, people, my students, uh, there are thousands of papers studied on that. And uh, so, but I'm not saying there are no problems, but it, 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 it is bio-based. It's bio-compatible in a lot of ways. It's degradable, but degradable defined in the controlled industrial compost environment. If you collect, like Steve said, if you have a nice collection system, you can actually Yes, you, it's degradable, and uh, but problem with that is uh, it, it's uh, the mechanical properties. That's actually the fundamental issue with the PLA because it's very brutal. Unlike polyethylene polypropylene, has a, like four, three, four hundred percent elongation, and the PLA is on, only about three to six percent. But so if you can't make PLA be performing, behaving like polyolefine, you are a winner. It's biodegradable, and again, so the other challenge is if you can make a chemical recyclable. Currently, PLA has limited chemical recyclability. So if you depromise it, deconstruct it, you recover some of building blockers, so-called L-lactide. PLA is a polylactic acid, like polyacetic from fermentation with sugars. So entire, basically, you have this biological cycle system. But the currently, chemical recyclability of PLA is limited. Biodegradability is under controlled environment. You put it on a landfill. And uh, actually, if it's because of carcinogenicity, 170 degrees Celsius, and uh, so it, it, under basically oxygen and moisture starving conditions, it's going to stay there for a long, long time, but it collects nicely. So fantastic material. I think more research has to be done. And uh, I think there's a brighter future for bio-based plastics. If you can make them basically uh, in terms of properties and to uh, can that compete legacy polymers. And uh, I think the attitude of the industry, especially those uh, legacy polymer producers, 
that the new polymers entering the market will contaminate their products. I think that's an incorrect attitude. I think you, you should welcome the design with new polymers that has advantage in recyclability, chemical recyclability, biodegradability, performance. I, I think there should be multiple uh, prong approaches, not just a single approach. Mm -hmm. Because if it just stay with the legacy polymers, why do we talk about the same problems here? If the, the easy problem to address and uh, half a decade, I mean, the decade, uh, basically half a century, the problem would have solved. So that's the greater need to design new materials that don't have those inherent problems. And so that's, we are very passionate about that. So the, the, the PLA is very welcome because it's so popular. And, but there are issues associated with that. The materials, the new design materials, I intend to overcome those issues. So we, we probably have several papers coming out in that front too. So in, in conclusion, and uh, I think there, you should take different approaches, especially bio-based feeds how you design bio renewability doesn't mean it's degradability or recyclability, right? So how you design this, use the bio-based molecules and design that structure, then subsequently the polymer can have the properties of luxury polymers, but have the advantage of a complete chemical recyclability or degradability. I think that's the future in terms of materials design. Thank you. Uh, so my plan here is to do one more question, and then, and then that'll leave time for each of the panelists to be able to kind of sum up them, uh, what they want us to to go on the way out, and um, yes, way in the back. Yeah, the, uh, the, and again, there are two approaches. That is the, how you design new chemistry, new methods to make, to render current non-recyclable polymers more recyclable, so make use of the current materials as inexpensive building blocks. And the other is a completely new design of polymers that have the inherent recyclability beauty into the performance. And uh, so usually they are, because they don't get come together because of the robust materials so they design for stability so they don't they are not very recyclable in terms of chemical recyclability so it takes uh, uh, I mean lots of research to to basically balance that trade off and how you basically build that chemical recyclability into the performance then make it circular basically and with the energy efficient process for polymer reproduction and the deconstruction, every step making the energy efficient. And so that kind of a, as a important in the sense of a selectively, both promisation and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the depromisation. Um, okay, so our lunch starts in about seven minutes. Um, <clears throat> if, uh, if you could each maybe just spend, you know, like a couple of minutes or so and just, what do you want us to remember from, from on this subject, please. And Judith, since you've got to catch a plane, why don't you go first? Because you might be like talking on your way out the door. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So um, 
The Save Our Seas bill has been introduced in Congress. The nicest thing I can say about it is it's completely inadequate. Um, <laughs> it sets up a genius prize program, great. Um, it has very limited funding for litter cleanups, and it has a, a very troubling provision. Um, they set up a marine debris coordinating committee that shall submit to Congress a report on innovative uses for plastic waste other than infrastructure. So there's absolutely no focus on reducing the generation of plastic. This bill is moving in the Senate. It's been introduced by uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, typically a climate change champion, but I think he doesn't understand the climate connection to plastic pollution. Um, and also Senator Sullivan of um, Alaska. Uh, it's been strongly endorsed by the American Chemistry Council and President Donald Trump. Um, it, many environmental groups are opposing this bill. Uh, it's moved through two committees. Um, I get I do a lot of work in reading and analysis on climate change issues, and I think the most important analysis I've heard on climate change recently is from Paula Poundstone of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She was in Troy recently, and she talks in her shtick all about climate change, and she said, you know, the UN says we have till 2030 to avoid catastrophic climate change, and I see all these governors... Uh, announcing grand plans to reduce carbon at levels that are needed by 2050. She's like, help me with the math here. And that's the same thing on plastic pollution. I mean, there are some promising things happening, but they are, and I've been waiting for breakthroughs on bio-based plastics for years, but they're decades down the road. And this year, 9 million metric tons of plastic are entering the ocean every year. So my message is very, very simple. It's two things. And the first thing is very politically unpopular. Make less plastic. The second thing is you cannot tackle the complete climate change crisis without reducing the production of plastic. And the story is ethane crackers. Take a deep, deep look at that. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, I think some of your folks have a uh, Watched the movie, I think, 60s and played by Dustin Hoffman, right? So, graduate, right? So, yeah. we said to Mr. McGuire, give him advice and uh, plastics. He was looking at future careers as great, great future of plastics. Now, today we're talking about the enemy of society, right? Because of plastic pollution. But uh, here, I, I want to say there is a great future for sustainable plastics. The, the problem, uh, lots of problems and, and, and associated with just not getting away, reduce plastic production, I, suddenly I offer different view. I, I don't think that suddenly if you say you go to more recyclable aluminum, more recyclable metal, glass, and you're facing exactly the same thing. And so the plastic, because of light and also light, this is, a, like I said, since the 30s, why is it popular? They have tremendous properties and, uh, and also efficiency, energy efficiency associated with it. You have a lot of questions. But, but the, the, the problem is that we have to use a two, I think, takeaway home message is to take a two-pronged approaches. One is take advantage of a vast majority of this is a waste, polymer waste um, product out there to basically develop a new chemistry, new engineering methods to utilize those as a very inexpensive carbon building blocks to make something useful. However, one has to uh, uh, basically cons uh, build into recyclability into new materials, and otherwise you just create the problems of tomorrow. But a more promising approach is 
is design new materials that I repeat, I said it many, many times, so it's a sustainable plastic that is plastics that, of course, you make them useful, right? They not only uh, exhibit not only robust mechanical physical properties to be used, practically useful, but also uh, the chemical recyclability or biodegradability built into that performance. That's the future of the materials. And the, because if the legacy problems, like I said, if it's the easy solution to be solved in terms of recyclability, the problem would have been solved. Why do we have to continue to go through that pathway? And so that we should welcome new materials or designs, give them a chance. I know they are more expensive, but if we make them completely, uh, I mean, circular economy, then I, I think in the near future, not 20, 30 years, the near future, I think they will actually change the entire dynamics of a plastic industry. It's a great, great future for sustainable plastics. Thank you. So I'm the last speaker before lunch. Okay. Well. Okay. Good. Um, first of all, uh, thank you for being here on a Saturday morning and staying and inviting us. Because again, I said the ability to have this dialogue is something that you know we've been banging our heads against the wall for a long time. Um, and I would say, I would say to you, um, obviously, I'm a broken record when it comes to this is a broader issue than what say the easy narrative is. So I would encourage you to, um, uh, to go beyond China is the problem for our recycling industry. And I would also encourage you to um, use us as a technical resource. Um, we're not really an advocacy group. We're, we're really the technical problem solver for the plastics packaging industry. At our soul, we're data-driven, and we develop solutions dealing with the contamination of plastics packaging. So I would, I would welcome you to to do that. I actually put some things out there for our, uh, we have the Plastics Recycling Conference in um, uh, Nashville in February. Um, I'd love, love to have you guys come down and even have somebody on a panel if you want. I think that would be, that would be, uh, be very helpful. But I, I would say that from our, just from our perspective, regardless of whether or not we reduce plastics production at the virgin level, plastics are going to be around. And so we have to deal with them. And what we have to do is we have to create an incentive when the consumer makes a disposal con decision that they make the right decision. And we have to encourage them to do that. So we can't abandon the recyclability of the material because there's still going to be plastics that's going to be manufactured. It might be less, but we have to deal with that. And so to deal with that, we have to deal with our infrastructure to deal with it properly. So happy to answer any questions. I have some cards here. Um, Steve at PlasticsRecycling.org. It's not that hard to remember. Um, and we'd be more than happy to, to work with you. So thank you for your participation, and thank you for listening. Uh, so one, if there's just like one word of advice I might have to other journalists is uh, it's, it's an old line. It's, you know, follow the money. And in this case, just kind of look at where the fossil fuel industry is going, oil and gas industry is going. And the plastics se segment of it is a growth part of it at a time when, you know, we're talking about electrifying every vehicle on the planet. And so, um, so there's, there's an incentive there, I think, um, that we should probably pay attention to as well. There's, there's, um, you, you can, International uh, Energy Agency, you can find uh, reports that they've done that kind of look at the growth of the plastics industry relative to, relative to uh, um, other parts of, uh, um, you know, oil and gas industry. And, and it's just, you know, try to, try to get that 
that uh, broad view and in, into your stories, which certainly was something that I'm going to be trying to do in the next year. So um, uh, lunch is, you know, we've got the awards program and, and the lunch back in the ballroom right now. And thank you very much to the panelists for coming here. And thank you for part being part of this conversation as well. Thanks. Appreciate it. You're awesome. Thank you. <laughs>